Hello, you're listening to Sreda, the weekly podcast produced by VC, and I'm Karen Sarkisov. This episode is deliberately bilingual in Russian and English, so if you speak any of these languages, please stick around. This past few weeks, a recent poem by Russian poet Galina Rimbu, titled My Vagina, has been making the rounds on Russian-speaking social media, and to our surprise, it even stirred up a debate on what is possible or indeed appropriate in a poetic context, whether poetry with a capital P should directly confront or respond to current news and events. We decided to take advantage of this surge of interest to showcase some English translations of contemporary Russian poetry and vice versa, English poetry translated into Russian language, and invited Galina herself to read a couple of things she's been working on lately. Galina then extended the invitation to some leading translators of Russian poetry into English and effectively convened a small festival enabling the traffic of words between many geographies. I let Galina talk about it herself. Привет! Меня зовут Галина Рымбу. Я занимаюсь поэзией и её переводами, а также изучаю современную поэзию, в частности, феминистские и квирные поэтические практики. Еще я редактирую микромедиа современной поэзии Греза и онлайн-журнал, посвященный современной феминистской литературе и теории F-письмо на платформе Сигма. Сегодня наш подкаст действительно превратился в небольшой билингвальный поэтический фестиваль, и в рамках него мы поговорим о переводах русскоязычной поэзии на английский и наоборот, о переводах англоязычной поэзии на русский. Для этого мы пригласили сюда переводчиков и переводчиц современной русскоязычной поэзии на английский. Это Евгений Асташевский, Стефани Сандлер, Кевин Платт, Джоан Брукс и Хелена Кернен. Также здесь будет Дмитрий Кузьмин, который прочтет свои переводы на русский современных англоязычных поэтов. Я тоже прочту несколько переводов. Современная поэзия как таковая очень формально разнообразна. Она не вписывается в каноны классической литературы и даже в каноны модернистские, авангардные. Она экспериментирует с формами и эффектами, но это не обновление ради обновления. Это связано с поиском новых языков для выражения действительности, которая все больше усложняется, в том числе за счет появления новых коммуникативных средств, технологий, транскультурного и трансисторического диалога с формами прошлого, с философией, когнитивными науками, современным искусством, антропологией и так далее. За счет открытия новых диалоговых пространств, за счет создания мультидисциплинарных сред для критики поэтических практик, русская поэзия сегодня находится гораздо ближе к англоязычной традиции, чем, скажем, полвека назад. Между ними нет внушительного разрыва. Я надеюсь, вы услышите это по переводам, которые будут сейчас прочитаны. Также она может шокировать некоторых читателей и слушателей, работать с неожиданными темами, политическими и интимными дискурсами, делать видимым то, что в обществе принято не замечать. 
Возможно, именно поэтому пользователи русскоязычного сегмента Фейсбука и некоторые поэты, авторы, которые работают в рамках традиционной лирики, наследующей традициям XIX и Серебряного века, были так возмущены публикацией стихотворения «Моя вагина». Оно не оправдало их ожидания от поэзии, произвело разрыв шаблона. Но надо понимать, что в современной поэзии, на каком бы языке она ни писалась, всегда есть горизонт радикальной инновации. Итак, я сейчас прочту переводы двух стихотворений Вальжины Морт, белорусской поэтессы, которая живет в Америке и пишет на двух языках, белорусском и английском. Остров. Сыпь портовых огней в горном районе. Ночь, он говорит, это черный юмор дня. Сначала страшно, но на рассвете уже будешь смеяться. Я закидываю голову и отбиваю валан смеха. Ведь мужчины прижимали меня и работали, как китайские ткачихи. Но ни один не смог ударить меня по лицу так, как море бьет свою приемную дочь и само в слезах отступает. Остров, сплюнутый солнцем через плечо вселенной. Ворота охраняют сон перегретых овчарок. Забор держит за белыми зубами смех бугенвилей. Дорога поднимается передо мною зеркалом, где отражается все, что меня сюда привело. Кровать, мягкая, как побитый плод, целый лаймовый сад под синяком полуденной тени. В центре женщина сжимает в руке корешок книги. Тело раздевается до самого прощения. И прощает без всякой причины, разве хочет сказать. Я прощу твоим соком, что не налили эти плоды. Я прощу твоей коже, что не трескается и не гниет над муравьиным гнездом. Я прощу твоему горлу, что не разразилось собачьим кашлем. Прощу твоему лицу, что никогда не станет пятном, чтобы отметить эту кровать, эту дорогу и, главное, это море. Кирпичи лунного света сквозь жалюзи падают на пол, где он лежит на животе. Провал между его бедрами и задом идеальный черный алмаз. Солнечный пузырь на линии горизонта заживает, оставляя едва видимый шрам. Утопия После заката наш город пустеет, как вокзал, в чьем расписании нет ничего, кроме солнца и месяца. Океан, словно пес на цепи, кидается на чаек, и каплица откашливается ежечасно, но так и не решается ничего сказать. До нового рассвета любовники чинят наши тела, замазывают поры слюной, руками совершенствуют наши лица, потому и не похожи мы друг на друга. Мы ручной работы. Днем океанские волны бьются, словно голубые локоны мальвины, и мы расчесываем их своими мягкими телами. Мы приветствуем вас в колонии солнца, чей желтый флаг, стакан лимонада, мы поднимаем за каждым столом. Океан массирует земное ядро, и ночь — пережидает день в наших черных волосах. 
Под вечер наша кровь скипает И льется через нос, через рот На морские белые камни, Превращая их в красные яблоки. И мы протягиваем яблоки Нашим любовникам, И они ломают об них свои зубы. Потому мы не знаем Ни добра, ни зла. Нашими словами порой Можно резать мясо. Если нас предают, мы заходим глубоко в воду и смотрим, как наши сердца сбивают океан в пену. Полной луны белый кокон свисает, а на рассвете из него появляется красная бабочка, раскрывает крылья и спускается на водопой. И наши мужчины стараются ее объездить, падают ей на спину, как переспелые сливы с деревьев, пытаются приручить лошадь земли. А после губами сухими от жажды они припадают к нашим ртам, вытягивают из них наши сердца, словно тяжелые ведра, наполненные холодной водой из колодца. И потом с грохотом отпускают их падать вниз. Вот почему наши сердца болят. Если бы сердце можно было вырвать, как зуб, если бы память можно было забыть, мы под флагом желтого лимонада могли бы так счастливо жить. А новый день уже стоит у городских ворот, словно троянский конь, в котором прячется целая армия солнца. Наши мужчины ведут его на главную площадь. Их голые тела, как указательный палец Бога, и наша любовь из-за них страшная слепа как оса, что мечется в комнате. Когда стемнеет, мы прикладываем морские раковины к ушам и слушаем, затаив дыхание, как мальвина, состриженной наголо головой, плача в темноте собирает голубые космы своих знаменитых волос. Eugene Ostashevsky reads Lalita Gamalova and Alexander Skidan. Eugene Ostashevsky is a poet, translator, and professor at New York University. He is the author of, most recently, The Pirate Who Does Not Know the Value of Pi. Alexander Skidan, either or, with his sword he cleft my breast asunder from ear to ear, so that I, like Nebuchadnezzar, a scrumptious bream, lay upon the picnic table, a donor of the Holy Spirit. No, with his sword he did not cleave my breast asunder from ear to ear, so that I, like Nebuchadnezzar, a scrumptious, ascended cloud of the holy breath. What is my utterance to you? You are a sacred cow yourself, making water blood of ages. There is a crown upon your horns, a brand of thorny terzarime. What need have you, therefore, to milk me? Yes, I'm a donor and a grain of sand, and he's my ward, my mental ward. He'll table on me for a freebie like on a donor, give mouth to mouth. 
rise, whisper, and perceive, and hear. No, simply, rise, girly, get up, and go. Это перевод стихотворения Саши Скидана «Или-или». Стихотворение года, по-моему, 93-го, И перевод, он тоже очень ранний. Это один из моих самых ранних переводов. Тоже, наверное, конец 90-х. Я даже не знаю, когда. Напечатан он был Женей Туровской в «Redshifting». Это... Книжка Скидана, которая вышла в Ugly Duckling Press. Но я его сейчас прочел, потому что для меня этот перевод, работа над этим стихотворением, как бы была довольно важна в моей собственной траектории, потому что я довольно много чему научился в этом стихотворении, из этого стихотворения. Понятно, само стихотворение – это ремейк пророка Пушкина, Ремейк, где мешается и сильная эмоция, и пародия. То есть это такой травести, но, тем не менее, травести, функция которого передать настоящий жизненный опыт. То есть это не надсмешка над пророком, а, а как бы переделка более апофатическим языком, где тот экстаз, который с тобой происходит, его не пером описать, не гонораром оплатить. Вот. И поэтому здесь работа, которую, в принципе, можно назвать кубистской, потому что она основана на сечении, на то, что по-английски я бы назвал «cut». То есть очень сильные сдвиги между строчками – и уже во второй строфе какие-то слова просто выпадают, то есть они просто вырезаются, чтобы я как на выходоносор вкусном вознесся. Вот эти аспекты, я не знаю, серьезного травести, они также видны в этой постоянной тенденции неправильно цитировать классическую поэзию вместо «что в имени тебе моем», «что в, в имени тебе моем». Но, опять же, это не насмешка, это пародия как новая серьезность. И травести на другом уровне, где пол пророка, гедр пророка меняется в конце стихотворения. Встань, девочка, встань и иди. Вот. Что было для меня очень важно? Для меня было очень важно, вот это как бы первая строка рассказывает историю, а вторая строка эту историю отрицает и дает что-то другое. И он мне грудь рассек мечом. Нет, он мне грудь не рассекал мечом. И я не помню, знал я тогда или нет, но, короче, это явно идет от Веденского, от ковра гортензии. Веденский говорит в разговорах Липавского о том, как он писал ковер гортензию, он говорит, что сначала я написал а, это строчки про орла, та, такие-то строчки, потом я написал противоположные строчки, когда орел делает что-то другое, я сейчас точно не помню, что. 
И потом я подумал, почему я не могу иметь эти... Почему я должен выбирать между этими противоположностями? Почему я не могу их вставить в стихотворение? Вот. И я помню, что через какое-то время, через довольно маленькое время после перевода... А, то есть тогда, это 98-й год тогда получается. Я написал стихотворение, которое для меня было довольно существенно анвявало где я повторяю то же самое, то есть где я делаю то же самое, и это я явно взял, научился как бы, ну вот, как переводчик э, скидан. Лолита Агамалова, Diligent Quadvis Fuck, translated by Ansley Moores and Eugene Ostashevsky. In the Garden of Phallic, Regalia, garden of addictions, you know where the head bloom blooms with overweening letters as I write you letters hiding out in the thick gardens. I love your bronze bones. I love your navel blooming with dry roots facing off, intertwined in the likeness of organic pre-discursive and single sex fucking. I love your moles furling into a tongue, slitting the tongue and the twilight of the forgotten tongue into lesbian type and the toothy punch of braille. I love your pubes suggesting perspective fucking in the semantic rye and massive beetles under teeth, sheets rooting in gold roots for gold things. Everything in this world makes me think of fucking and wakes up, gazes at the ceiling and Everything in this world makes Anne think of fucking. Sometimes she goes out in the world of pure knowledge, pure substance, but more often even the reading of Plotinus, Porphyry, or Proclus makes her think of fucking. Everything in this world makes me think of fucking. I look up at the ceiling awakening addled and we plants intertwining addictively in the heart of a lexical ready-made from the porn hubs in the small half-bourgeois life not hidden behind the leaky ontology of all open fan fictions, closed-off literatures, close to rat phantasms gnawing open the febrile bellies of juvenile suckers Everything in this world makes me think of fucking when your orgasmic cries seem to be that very cry slitting open the night, slitting open the night of discursivity where rat phantasms devour themselves and reproduce to the cries and creeping critiques of atomizing violence. It's fine that the spread of that night is wind-chapped a long time now and blood clods dried lube, your lips blue either from cold or wine, my cunt like eaten away on the inside by mold. What would it be like if out on the street they didn't tender you sperm instead of water? When your throat seizes with poverty, you refuse tactfully to remember as in silky sainthoods of phantas phantasmic fire, salt which in the bonfire of Russian radio waves divested by masturbation of all the tongues she ever mastered as we do battle with black triangles and scorched tongues as I lick you out, transubstantial. And she ating into a great tongue, a new great 
tongue of the liquefaction of bitter lava as the garden of addictions falls silent and comes apart like scorched earths before the fertilizer of sperm. Blood as I coming apart is seized in the liquefaction of messianic libidinal gall, smacking, slurping, squelching beyond the beyond tongues in a deep dike in narrows and straits trod upon by translucent crutches. Breathe out, hick, I speak with hands like a church father. Everything that has ever been spoken in truth, this is ours. Slit the throats of the rest, stone it with stones, give it Sariah's sorrow, diligent, put this fuck, my love, my dear. I was asked to make some comments on my translation with Ansley Moore's of Lalita Agamalova's uh, poem Dulegi Quodbis Fak, which is coming out in um, our anthology of uh, new Russian feminist writing. I'm recording this outside, so at a playground, actually, somewhere north of Berlin. What do I want to say about this poem? Um, when I was reading the initial printout of the anthology, it's a poem that jumped out at me. I, I wanted to translate it because it has this enormous drive. It just goes and 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 goes and, goes and, goes and then it ends. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odic kind of drive, which exists in all sorts of kinds of mostly Baroque or Baroqueish poetry. And I enjoy it and I really respect that, this kind of drive, this kind of energy. The second thing about the poem is Lalita Gamalova studies philosophy. She studies, at least one of the things she studies has to do with patristics. And the title of the poem is a quotation in Latin from St. Augustine, Dilige Quadvis Fac, uh, which means love, imperative of the verb to love in the sense of agape, and then do what you will, do what you think is right. So she takes this Latin phrase and she takes the second imperative, which is do, um, which in Latin is fuck. And of course she runs it through English. So sexualizing it completely and, you know, transforming, transforming agape into eros. And I like that kind of wordplay. I like that kind of wordplay a lot. I like personally a poem that mentions Plotinus, Porphyry. I mean, to me personally, it's a kind of shout out. And um, I like this kind of, rethinking of sexuality through philosophy. In fact, it's very hard for me to understand sexuality without it. I, I guess birds do it and bees do it, but I'm not a bee. And it's something that makes the poem into a modern metaphysical poem because it takes a an everyday experience and it runs it through, I guess, what one used to call culture and now it doesn't even have a name, probably. What else can I say about this poem? Um, oh, yeah. So I asked Ansley to help me translate it. And 
we translated, uh, both of us have been doing a lot of collaborative translations, which is when you just sit and you talk about the poem and you come up with ideas and it's fun to do. It's a lovely way to, to, to pass time together, to hang out together. But it's also, uh, it's also you come up with, you just come up with more alternatives with more possibilities when there's two of you than, than you do when there's one of you. What else? I mean, it's a lesbian sex poem, so maybe it wasn't super polite of me to read it. Maybe I should have asked Ansley to read it, but um, Ansley is somewhere in the countryside with no internet because it's vacation time. I'm also somewhere in the countryside, but with internet. So it fell on me to do it. Somehow, in the poem's idea of sexuality, there's, there's, I mean, in the sexual imagery of the poem, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot which is wild in the sense of forests and animals and animal life. And so sexuality transforms into, in it, into a kind of cosmogony, which, which is also something that I think is interesting. And it's something that also makes me think of, of Vidyansky, of the, the cosmogonies of Vidyansky. Stephanie Sandler reads Fyodor Swarovski and Yelena Fanailova. Stephanie Sandler is professor of Slavic languages and literatures at Harvard University. She is the author of a number of books and co-author of History of Russian Literature, published by Oxford University Press. Greetings from Amherst, Massachusetts. It's a great pleasure to participate in this podcast and to talk about the work of two poets, Fyodor Swarovsky and Yelena Fanailova, whom it's been a pleasure for me to translate in the past and whose work continues to interest me um, and whose work I continue to want to translate. I'll begin with a poem by Fyodor Swarovsky, translated at first in 2011 at one of the gatherings called Your Language, My Ear, which Kevin Platt has organized at the University of Pennsylvania. It was published in 2013, but I've revised it for this occasion. Uh, the poem in Russian is called Biedne Jenny, and in English, Poor Jenny. Karishinko went on vacation alone for the first time. There wasn't enough money to pay for his wife, but he needed the trip. There was inflammation in his lungs. The doctor said, go somewhere warm, breathe some air rich in iodine. But every place close by costs too much these days. He had to choose among distant shores. He stares at the beach. Plump 16-year-old Jenny is swimming with Papa and Mama. She has a temporary Celtic tattoo on her loose-skinned butt. She's lying across a float, awkwardly moving along with her huge pale legs. Karishinko thinks, Bring salvation, O Lord, to the clumsy among us. Make of them magnanimous beings. Make them into the best of all these thin, tanned revelers. He thinks, 
if this is how it has to be, how she has to be, let this Jenny get married to some smart, handsome young man. Maybe my younger brother, Dima. He's got an advanced degree, works as a docent, a biologist, or maybe to my cousin, Genia. He's an archaeologist, writes books. He's respected in scholarly circles. Her husband will praise these chubby movements of hers. After all, it's not her fault. Let them have pretty children of the feminine gender and then some more kids. He even called his wife, told her all this. She started to cry. She says, Siroja, you have no brother Dima. There is no such person as Genya. You don't have any relatives at all. It's 10 years, they're all gone. I kept saying I was afraid this would happen. It's that same sharp anxiety that everyone gets in the spring, but you get it in the summer for some reason. Right now, start to take medicine. At noon, do not go out into the sun at all. Karishinko answers, of course, don't worry, and thinks, there's no Dima and no Genia for you, poor Jenny, our poor, poor Jenny. The second poem is Svanalova's poem, Liana, or the poet and the people, which in Russian is called Liana i Liudi. That title in Russian is just two words. It's quite symmetrical. There was no way to replicate that symmetry in the English. So I chose to have a subtitle, The Poet and the People, which would signal the poem's second and important theme, which is the relationship of the poet to readers. Um, The other important theme in the poem is that similarity of that uh, title of the poem, the symmetry, in Liana i Liudi, because there are two people named Liana in this poem, the poet and the woman whose story she tells. Like Swarovski, uh, Fanelove is a poet who tells stories and tells them with a similar sense of compassion and humor. And like Swarovski, her poems are often quite long. This one is very long indeed, and so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll read about two-thirds of it, and then skip a bit, and then just read the very ending of the poem. So, Liana, or the poet and the people. There's a clerk in the all-night store where I stop after work to buy food and drinks. I hate that word, drinks. One time, she said to me, I saw you on television on the Culture Channel. I liked what you were saying. Are you a poet? Let me read your book. I'll give it back, I promise. I say, I don't have a spare copy right now, but when I get one, I promise I'll bring it to you. I wasn't at all sure she'd like the poems. That actor's urge to be liked is astonishing, whorish. It disappeared after Sasha died, but now it's secretly returned. Eventually, an extra copy of my book, the Russian version, turned up poet has to get involved distributing books after all. Publishers don't do much on this front. I handed it over, right there as I was paying for the food and drinks. Kefir for in the morning, one gin and tonic, a second gin and tonic, plus a little vodka and farewell cruel world. To quote Lvovsky's version of two Nizhny Novgorod boys' conversation, no question, 
I remain a provincial teenager. It turned out that Liana and I were namesakes. I hate that word, namesakes. And even more, I hate the word connect. It arouses physiological spasms in me, possibly because the word has echoes of coitus and sex. But I prefer fucking pure and simple. After all, I am my own highest judge. Could you autograph it, she says. To Yelena, I write, from Yelena. I hand it over nervously. For a few days, she doesn't look me in the eye. Then, one day there aren't many other people. She says, so I read your book. I didn't understand a word of it. Too many names of people no one knows. I had the feeling you write for a narrow circle, for friends, for an in-group. Who are these people? Who are they, Yelena? The ones you name. Gave it to my girlfriends to read. One of them knows a little bit about literature. She felt the same way. It's for a narrow circle. I say, well, the part about St. Tichon of Zadonsk. You didn't get that? She says, no, I got the part about Tichon. I say, what about Siryosha the Drunk? Did you get that? She says, I got that. I say, and the essays, you didn't get them? I got the prose, she says. I even wanted to read more about the people you were writing about. So I say, Liana, believe me, I didn't do it on purpose. I don't want to be hard to figure out. It just turns out that way. She looks at me sympathetically and says, okay. I keep on justifying myself. You know, I write plenty of articles, and if you understand the ones in the book, then you'd get the other ones too, right? She says, okay, I get it. So do you want two beers and menthol cigarettes? Yes, I say. Liana, I'm going to work on myself. The balloon came back, a sign of wealth. Look, that's almost a rhyme. Why in the world do I care if she gets it? Why am I trying to justify myself? Why do I have this furtive sense of unease, this forgotten wish that she like me? So now I'm going to skip ahead and just read the very end of the poem. I walk home thinking, who is she, this Liana, a clerk in an all-night store, heavy set, 50 years old, with glasses, I love the word heavy set. She's plump, not at all flabby. Tall, a solid bleached blonde. She watches the Culture Channel when she's not working around the clock and coming out to smoke on the stoop and joke with the security guard. Who was she in that previous life? An engineer, a librarian? I have to remember to ask next time if there aren't too many people around. And of course she's right. It's a complicated text, even when it pretends to be simple, like now. So that's the end of the poem, and it's a splendid ending that points to the moment when we are reading it, the now of the poem, which comes right to us. It's among Fanoilova's many gifts that she's able to shift registers in terms of intonation as well as stylistic registers. Uh, she would go on to write a second poem, 
which plays on the name Liena, her name, uh, called Liena and Liena. And both of those long poems are in the book, which Ugly Duckling Pressed, uh, Ugly Duckling Press in Brooklyn published of Fun Oliver's poetry, a book that I was lucky enough to translate together with Zhenya Torovskaya. Um, Fanailova has continued to write a great deal, including remarkable poems about the ongoing political situation and the war in Ukraine. And I look forward to the occasion of being able to translate some of those poems, as well as the current work that Swarovski is doing. Again, warmest thanks for inviting me to participate in this podcast. Kevin Platt reads Sergei Timofeev, Artur Punte, Simon Hanin, Fyodor Swarovski, and Yelena Mikhailik. Kevin Platt is professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of Terror and Greatness, Ivan and Peter as Russian Myths, and History in a Grotesque Key, Russian Literature and the Idea of Revolution. He is the organizer of Your Language, My Ear, a periodic Russian-English poetry translation symposium at the University of Pennsylvania. All right, I'm going to start by recording this uh, poem by Sergei Timofeev, Old War, it's titled. Forgive me, old war, that I didn't die in you, that I can still, for instance, get angry over trivialities and go crazy about rubbish. I know you're a big pit with no bottom. When you were young, you took millions into yourself with ease. Now you're old and don't want people to forget you. You show your old snapshots, proudly share your reminiscences, and even colorize old black and white newsreels for absolute faithfulness. And I have total faith in you. That is, that it was all just like that. But me, I'm weighing the odds I'll land a new job or maybe open a small business myself. Later, all the same, I think about you. What do you want with me, you record holder and burnt meat? All your fronts, your maps with arrows for attacks and ovals for encirclements. All your deathly makeup has no attraction for me, not a drop. But I don't say that aloud. I smile politely and wait for you to droop your head and doze off over your evening cordial of red liqueur. So um, in general about the Arvita poets, um, who are wonderful poets uh, who perform together from Riga, Latvia, I can say that um, I've been translating them for quite a while. I'm really attracted to their, their vibe. They have this uh, very urban, very Northern European, almost Scandinavian vibe combined with Russian poetry. Um, this poem in particular, I think, communicates with a lot of people's feelings about the history and memory of World War II, uh, which is really kind of a looming presence in 
most of Northern Europe, especially in Eastern Europe. And this is a poem which manages to, um, to stake out positions with regard to that history and memory, but also um, to present the sort of main position, which is, do we have to keep on doing this over and over again? Do we have to let it loom? And I think it's a really important poem for that reason. All right, uh, let me move on to a second poem um, by Artur Punte, who's also a member of the Arvita group. It's called Enough. I liked it as long as everything was bearable enough. We wild time away. Each year, summer was sunny enough. The rather pleasant smell of books in the cupboard, the veranda, where we wild away time, was sheltered in the heat by a more or less huge bush with large flowers dropping petals. That high spongy bed where we wild away time in the rains, usually reading, even extended rains, it was bearable enough, you could say. We weren't bored, more or less wiling free time away to our satisfaction. Later, of course, it wasn't bad either. Once, for example, it was bearable enough when we built that fence by video instructional evenly enough, we hit our stride or something. And just like before, on occasion, whiling time away, but more often just waiting, time's short anyhow, and it's exhausting. So the time's come to say that's more than enough, more or less, it's over or something. Go ahead, go on without me. I like this poem um, mostly because it captures such an incredible 2020 mood. Obviously, there have been a lot of moods associated with pandemic life, but one of them has been uh, making do and this sense of the dilation of time. It's slowing down. I don't think this poem was actually written um, with a pandemic in mind. I think I actually translated it before the pandemic took place. So we'll call it a, a prophetic poem by Artur Punte, which captures to some degree this feeling of being in the doldrums, of being stuck in time and place in a way which is not all that unpleasant, but also which just sort of winds you down eventually. Um, all right, and now one more poem by a third Arbita poet, Simeon Kanyan. Translated this one last summer with Eugene Ostashevsky. It's called Take Her to the Gardens. Take her to the gardens, then to the water, the river, then drive her crazy. Take her to the doctor and go crazy yourself, and to the doctor yourself. It's winter. Go on foot. First this away, then that away. Cut back on carbs. Stand in for those whose minds are lost. Become at home among them, and then wholly at home. Later, backyards and courtyards and shopyards. Lead her under marble vaults. Bring water, water. Then seek freedom. Holler for it later. This poem, I love because it's so typical of Hanin, 
the level of wordplay, some of which we managed to capture in this translation and some of which we didn't. Um, Hanin has this way of taking grammatical functions and then transforming them into lived realities. So this take her to the gardens and drive her crazy, I think is just a wonderful invention of his. And it's really typical of the way that Hanin plays with language. Sometimes it's possible to translate these things into the English. And sometimes the idiom just makes it impossible. I've got this whole stack of poems that Hanin has sent me and I look at them and, you know, I just think this is just impossible to render into another language. It's so dependent on the idiomatic and grammatical construction of the language that it comes from, from Russian. So that's it for the Orbita poems. Um, and as I said, Orbita is a, a, a group that I've been translating for a long time. And I think I'm something like their official English translator, um, which is a position that I fulfill with pride. Um, although I'm always happy when other people translate poets that I work on as well, because it's always interesting to see what other people do. Um, I'm going to turn to another poet um, who also is uh, located outside of the Russian Federation, although um, he lived in Moscow for a long time. He was born in Moscow, but then he immigrated to Denmark, then back to Moscow, and now he lives um, in Montenegro, which is where his ancestors are from. Uh, the poem is called To the Sea, To the Sea, and it's by Fyodor uh, Swarovsky, um, and it goes like this. Number one. In this photograph, in my uncle's house, everyone is happy. Tanning on the beach, swimming in the foam, and under umbrellas playing lotto and card games, and in the distance glides a ship. The sailors are raising the sail, cutting through the blue waters, the living waters. The ship is exiting the bay. Ahead lies a hot day of sea spray and cigarette breaks. Two, no one is afraid of sharks or of the giant octopus or of the typhoon or the doldrums or of seasickness because they are all dead. Nothing can happen to them anymore. Three, soon we'll all turn up our toes or kick the bucket, buy the farm or throw in the towel. Four, and without any towels along the hot sands, we'll go down to the sea because it's been scientifically proven. All life emerged from the sea. The fish came out on the shore and started to smoke and pick fights until finally they split the atom. Five. And now all the hairless primates return there in their white ships, heading off in various distances. They sail toward the horizon. There, according to well-tested data, the absolutely firm land becomes a yielding sky. So I love this poem because of its combination of the absolutely, you know, true facts, this, the, the actual experience, the temporality of looking at a photo of people who are long dead. Um, and it's playful incorporation of a kind of a fantastic line 
uh, although nothing that comes up in the poem is actually too fantastic. Um, but the, the combination of the whole turns this reality of ours and its, its existential features, the fact that we're all going to kick the bucket by the farmer, throw in the towel, and wind up being washed back down to sea. Um, it throws all that into this sort of lyric metaphysical perspective, which I think is just marvelous. And now I've got one more extraterritorial poet. And in fact, all the poets that I'm reading uh, are extraterritorial, by which I mean uh, they are part of the Russian literary space, but they live and reside outside of Russia, the Russian Federation proper. Um, this is other Russias or global Russias or the you know, the multiplicity of the Russian literary multiverse that we're seeing here in its multiple global positions. So this one is written by Yelena Mikhailik, who's a wonderful poet uh, who lives in Australia, uh, also a literary scholar. Um, this poem uh, was translated at the translation workshop that I run periodically at the University of Pennsylvania at Kelly Writer's House. And our translation practice is actually to translate intensively in workshops with multiple participants. So this translation um, was translated by myself, Michael Wachtel, Yasha Klotz, James McGavran, Sibylin Forrester, Eugene Ostashevsky, and Yelena Mikhailik herself also took place. Obviously, she lives in Australia. Her English is excellent. Henry Morgan ran into giant squid in a quantity equal to pie, which, given he's a pirate, should come as no surprise. But this was on a neck of land, pretty much an open plain. Plus they had these huge wheels under them, spinning away. Henry Morgan said, what the wells is this? And marched right out of that tale. He's got his garden, his cabbage, two weeks paid vacation, deeds of sale. But without him, that neck of land is plunged into polar night. The squid, they're freezing, circling, getting everyone uptight. The environment offers little excitement. Its villainous villains just want a break. Its monsters shall sink into soup that its heroes won't cook. The sailor made landfall, then rode off into the sunset. This Waterloo stinks, brothers. And the author, unable to wake from this dream, wailed like Edgar Rice Burroughs. But a month later, after harvest, remodeling, fires, unshaven and sorry, looking, Morgan returns and says, still got any of that calamari? So this poem I, I really adore for its just peculiarity, its, its crazy uh, playfulness, its tall tale nature, it's a sort of a a, a wild yarn gone, gone wrong. And I feel like that we were really um, incredibly fortunate to have Eugene Ostashevsky, who is a, a wonderful poet in his own right, and also the author of a wonderful tall tale about a parrot uh, and a pirate and pie and all kinds of other things. Um, so he was, you know, one of the most essential members of the 
translating team here. And I think the original worked out pretty well. Um, it's just as absurd and fantastic as, uh, or the translation is just as absurd and translation and fantastic as the original. So I'm fairly proud of this one. I think it's going to be um, published fairly soon, I believe, in Cafe Review. So that's it. I'm really happy to participate in this podcast. Thank you for including me and to be continued.